right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, you have the Lord's Prayer, which is very possibly the oldest prayer Christians have prayed. It's been prayed for 2,000 years. It's been used as a censoring prayer. Many churches use it every Sunday. In fact, there are some churches that the only public prayer that you will hear in their church is the Lord's Prayer. Of course, they encourage people to pray privately and to develop communication with God in their life, but in public prayer, the Lord's Prayer, it, it is what centers them in church. I don't think I'm the only one that was shaken by the events of this past Thursday where this tragic shooting, I, I don't care how close you were to call your at the time, like things like that shake us. And when there are tragic events like that, we're left with questions of why do these things happen and how do they happen? And, and sometimes I get the messages of, hey, just help me process faith and evil and suffering in the world. And, and here's, here's, here's the thing, like you can't explain evil. Like you can't really make sense of evil. And the responsibility of the church isn't to make sense of evil. The responsibility of the church isn't to try to explain evil. The responsibility of the church is to try to explain Jesus. The one who keeps stepping into brokenness, the one who keeps stepping into our lives, the one who keeps stepping into pain to try to bring life and light wherever it is he goes. So today I want to walk us through the greatest sermon ever told in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We're in a series right now called Why Jesus? This is a question that I want you to be prepared to articulate in your life. If you, had a, if you have a child or a grandchild or a neighbor or a friend, a co-worker, if you're sitting on an airplane and you have someone next to you who asks, why do you follow Jesus? I want you to be ready to give an answer for that. And I hope that your answer is better than my grandmother did it or I go to church on Sunday. Like for you to be able to articulate what it is God has done in your life. So we're in this series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're just walking through Matthew from a few weeks ago all the way until the end of this month. And today, when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever told, I want to begin in the end. I want to begin at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, not the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. I had a a preaching professor who taught me, when you write sermons, you should write your conclusion first so that you know where you're going. Because the last thing we want is somebody who communicates where they get to the end and they just circle the airport like 30 times because they aren't sure when they need to land. This is how Jesus chose to land the plane in the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount comes to the end, and here's how Jesus ends it. In Matthew chapter 7, you'll see this up on the screen. Here's how the Sermon on the Mount ends, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount by encouraging people to action, to listen to what Jesus has to say, and to go and do it in your life. So here's what I want to do. Every, every week, what I'm doing right now in this series called Why Jesus, as we walk through Matthew, is I'm giving you what I am calling a truth of grace and a reach. And just a breakdown of those three is every week, what I want to do is I want to place in front of you whatever it is we're reading that day, what is the truth of it? A grace is, uh, what does it say about Jesus? What a grace is, is how does that text connect you to God? Like how are you having a connection with God through what we are reading and studying? And then the reach is a challenge for you. How do you go beyond yourself? What is the risk you need to take in your life as you try to embody and live out whatever it is we're talking about on a Sunday? So I'm going to give you two of the three of these at the very beginning today. And here, here it is. The truth is this. Jesus is the most compelling teacher you will ever find. Jesus is a fantastic teacher. The grace is this. That when Jesus teaches, 
He doesn't just want to give you knowledge. Jesus teaches to inspire and to generate and create life change until the day you die. Jesus does not just desire to be the Savior of your life, but in being the Lord of your life, He wants to be the ultimate teacher in your life. And in order for Jesus to be the ultimate teacher in your life, you have to spend time with Jesus, you have to listen to Jesus. And I'm going to hold off on the reach until later on in this message. I want you to see an image. Uh, this is just a random house. This isn't a house in Memphis or Shelby County, just a random house. And as you see this image, and hopefully those of you online, you're able to see it. If not, I just want you to visualize a house, <laughs> and you're seeing the front of it. And as you look at this house, maybe some of you, what you notice right now is you notice like the paint color. Maybe you notice that there are big windows on the front of the house, and there are a lot of lights. So you could just imagine what Christmas is like with this house. You could see inside, you would be able to see a Christmas tree. Maybe some of you are already trying to make out like the landscaping. What are the flowers? And maybe you notice the kind of, I mean, it's a pretty cool sidewalk that's going up to the house. Maybe you see the trees in the background. And there are a lot of different things you notice about the house. And one thing I bet nobody notices, I bet nobody had the thought in your mind right now of, that is a wonderful foundation to that house. You notice the cosmetics, the painting, you notice the lights, a lot of other things, but probably no one is thinking, what a great foundation. Because when a foundation is doing what a foundation is meant to do, you probably don't notice it. When a foundation is broken, you'll probably notice it. When it comes to our life with God, some people with the fruit, they want the fruit of a foundation they're not willing to establish. They want to see fruit come from their lives, but they're not digging deep to have the kind of foundation that God wants for your life. So one of my favorite trees is a palm tree. I love palm trees. Maybe the reason I love palm trees is my wife loves the beach, and when Casey sees a beach, we usually see a lot of palm trees. Now, even the way in saying that, you may think that I have like a top 10 list of trees. I don't even know 10 different names of trees. I just know I like the palm tree. One of the reasons I love a palm tree is that I know that palm trees actually get stronger during the storm. So during storms, their roots dig deeper and clench. Their, their trunk holds, holds firm. A palm tree is prepared for a storm of life. So when the hurricanes come, they're ready for it. So I've told a story or two that last September, September of 2020, my family went to the beach and we got stuck in what ended up being a hurricane two, uh, a category two hurricane, Hurricane Sally. Now at that time, it was 100, 120 mile per hour winds. As I tell this story every year, those winds are going to increase by probably five or 10 miles per hour every year that I tell the story. So you can just imagine what this is going to sound like in 20 years. So we go through this entire night hearing this hurricane whipping around our condo or at the very top of a condo. Every once in a while, you would feel the condo move. And, and I wasn't too worried about whether we we're going to survive it or not. It was just one of the longest nights of our lives. I was, I was concerned about my wife and my kids. I wanted them to feel at peace. And I kept walking out outside, not on the patio where the storm was hitting from the front, but on the back. And the reason was, is I was trying to look out into a parking lot. Now, this was a few hours after the hurricane went by. If you're able to see it, you can see that it had dropped a lot of, a lot of rain. There were some cars that were fully submerged under the water. We saw rescue boats. But you can see a little bit of the parking lot of where we were. Now, the reason during the storm that I was walking out to look, every hour I would walk out there, I would walk out and I would stand at 250 mile per hour wind as it's hitting my, hitting my chest as I'm standing there looking at this storm because that trip, we did not take one of our cars because we didn't trust that one of our cars could actually make it to Florida. We rented a car 
So my rent car's out in the parking lot, and I was so nervous and scared that something was going to fall on it, so I kept walking out because I didn't know if I was going to have to make a call to my insurance agent, Chuck, and call him because you can't text Chuck, right? If you know Chuck, you can't text him. You've got to call him. And I didn't know if I was going to have to call him to say, man, our car's been demolished. I don't know what to do. Help me get back to Memphis. And as you can see, we had one of the only parking lots where the water flooded really well, or, or it, it removed itself really well. I think God did that just for me, just for me. Um, but one thing I noticed in this picture in the next day as we were able to drive and leave is that not a single palm tree was broken. There weren't any branches of palm trees laying around on the ground. The palm trees know how to endure a storm. Now, last week, we took a moment in our worship service where we went to four different tables, and it's one of my favorite moments in, in the life of our church, and we haven't been able to do this in a year and a half, but we had these boards with God over storms, and some of you went and you just wrote out a word or a phrase about a storm that God has conquered in your life or a storm that you are currently in that we're asking God to bless you through and to give you strength as you go through it. There's a guy named Napoleon Hill. He was an author who lived in the 20th century, died around 1970. He wrote a lot on self-help and self-care. Self -care. And here's what he said. And this wasn't in reference to a palm tree, but here's what he said. The strongest oak tree of the forest is not the one that's protected from the storm and hidden from the sun. It's the one that stands in the open where it is compelled to struggle for its existence against the winds and rains and the scorching sun. In the Gospel of Matthew... Matthew is concerned that people aren't taking Christian allegiance seriously. I think Matthew, Matthew is writing to people after the year 70 AD, which would have meant that, especially for Jewish Christians, the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was decimated, and many of their hopes were gone. They were shattered. And Matthew is writing, trying to remind people of the confession you've made, because now there are people who aren't taking their confession seriously. So he's writing to remind people, if you confess that Jesus is the Lord of your life, you live this out even as the storms of life come. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, it's the greatest teaching that Jesus offers, the greatest sermon ever told. And the way Jesus ends this sermon isn't by saying, hear and believe, or hear and know, or hear and study this harder, the way Jesus ends the sermon is, hear what I'm saying and go do it. Hear what I'm saying and act on this. So it's not just hear and understand or hear and believe, it's hear and go do it. Now one thing Matthew wants you to know is that Jesus is the new Moses. Moses came and brought a great liberation. Moses came and, and uh, led people into freedom. Jesus has taken you to your ultimate freedom. Matthew wants you to know that, hey, Moses was a great teacher, wrote the first five books of the Bible, or, uh, did a lot to write those books, put them together, is attributed to him. But Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew has five big teachings. So you think Moses is a great teacher? Jesus is a teacher like you would never imagine. Randy Harris, who's a, a good friend and mentor of mine, he taught me, uh, I had six classes with Randy in college. The very first semester, we had life and teachings of Jesus. So for a semester, Randy helped a bunch of freshmen understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John better. Now, a few years after I graduated, Randy changed what the final was going to be in that Bible class. And for over 15 years, what Randy did, until he retired last year, is that he had his freshmen memorize the Sermon on the Mount. And one by one, for the final, you went into his office, and you had to recite... The Sermon on the Mount, word for word, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And your grade would be based on how well you did. You had all semester to do it. 
So our children's minister, Anna Moser, was in his class. She had to do this, so I put her on the spot in first service and invited her to the stage when she said she wasn't quite ready to do it. But when Anna did family news, she stood up this morning and she talked about what that experience was like, that she had to go into his office. She was so nervous. If you know Anna, she's a perfectionist, right? Like Anna, she takes all of her responsibility super seriously. She said she nailed it word for word. And Randy's response was, great job, it was perfect, but you're not as perfect as Jesus, so I can't give you 100, but I give you a 99. So Anna got a 99. Now the whole reason Randy does this it's not just because he's trying to see how good you are at memorization. It's that Randy knows that the Sermon on the Mount carries in it the truth that you need to have a foundation for the rest of your life. It, is, it could be the greatest centering piece in your life. So this morning, I want to briefly walk you through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, buckle up, because we're going to go fast. There are going to be about seven or eight images pop up on the screen. Feel free to take notes. You can take quick pictures. But here's the thing. The reason I'm doing this with you today, and Casey challenged me this week. She's like, Josh, I don't think you can do this Sermon on the Mount in one Sunday. So we're about to see if I can prove Casey wrong or not. And as I go through it, I want you to know this. What Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount is just as relevant and as applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago. There's not a person listening today, whether you're in person or virtual, who is not going to hear something from Jesus that you need in your life, that's going to challenge part of your life. So here we go. The Sermon on the Mount begins, Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 6. What Jesus does is he wants to establish identity. He wants to invite people in the kingdom living. And he wants to remind you who you are in God. A great way for Jesus to begin a sermon. He doesn't begin so much with a challenge, he begins with blessings. He begins by reminding people and telling people who they are in God. So we have the Beatitudes where Jesus starts saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. So Jesus is establishing identity, inviting people into kingdom life. Now, if you're kind of new to church or church language and Christianese, I just want, like when you hear me or when you hear someone talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, I want you just to think of the reign of Jesus, that Jesus reigns over all things and Jesus is inviting us into that kingdom. This is where Jesus tells people, tells us, y'all, y'all are the light of the world, like y'all are the salt of the earth, like Jesus really does believe in his people. And then Jesus moves into a section, chapter 5, verse 17, all the way through verse 48, where it's like Jesus is talking to people, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, hey, there are those out there who think that I came to like do away with the Bible, do away with the Old Testament and create my new Bible. But what I want you to know is I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it. And the phrase Jesus uses six different times is this, you heard it was said, but I tell you. And this isn't Jesus removing whatever was said. It's Jesus making this, hey, I need you to know this isn't about a box you were checking. This is a heart that God is cultivating for you. So the way Jesus does this is you've heard it was said, don't murder. All right, but I tell you, like, don't harbor bitterness and anger in your heart. Like, who needs to hear that, right? Like, the goal of life is not for you to get to the age of 80 and to look back and to think, I'm a good person because I didn't kill anybody in my life. As Jesus is saying, hey, it's not that you don't go through life and you don't kill people. It's that you don't, you don't hold anger and bitterness in your heart. Jesus says, you've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. Again, like the goal of being a faithful spouse isn't to get to the to year 50 as a spouse and to think, well, I'm a good husband or a good wife because I didn't cheat on my husband or wife. 
Jesus is saying, you've heard it was said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you that don't even lust after people. Don't even lust. Don't, don't even look at people in that kind of way. Jesus says, you've heard it was said that if you divorce, you're supposed to hand out a certificate, which I think in those days, that was happening. Like men were just getting rid of their wives like coupons. And Jesus reminds them of the covenant of marriage. Jesus said, you've heard it was said, don't swear falsely. Like, don't go about doing, uh, trying to tell people that you're a person of your word by saying, I swear to God, or I swear by the church, or I swear by the temple, or I swear by a priest. Like, you be a person of your word. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. And then Jesus lays out a law of retaliation by saying, you've heard it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't repay an evildoer. You turn the other cheek. And then Jesus says, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemy. And the way that section ends is, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. To be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect is in the context of loving and praying for your enemies. So Jesus is taking the law and making sure people know that the law you have heard and read from God is meant to cultivate your heart for God. And part of cultivating your heart for God, it's having the spiritual disciplines and practices in your life that are keeping you rooted. So then Jesus moves into talking about three different spiritual practices. So in Matthew 6, 1 through 18, there are three practices. Jesus talks about giving, about praying, and about fasting. And the way Jesus does this is not just by suggesting that you do these things. Jesus actually doesn't even command that you do them. So Jesus doesn't say that I command you to give or to pray or to fast. The way Jesus does this is by just assuming these things are going to happen. So all three times Jesus says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. And the way Jesus talks about giving is that when you give, it's not that you do this for show that everyone else sees what you're giving. And that when you pray, don't think that, that your prayer life is meant to try to impress God or impress other people. It's meant to be a connection between you and God. And when you fast, this isn't so everyone around you sees how spiritual you are. It's that when you fast, this is something that is cultivating your heart for God. And in establishing those three spiritual practices, it's like, okay, now with a centered life, let's talk about one of the hardest things that they, they struggled with 2,000 years ago and that we, we struggle with too. So in verse 19 all the way to 34, what Jesus talks about is materialism and greed which challenges the American dream. I don't care what tax bracket you are in. It challenges the way you think about life, about money. This is where Jesus talks about, don't store up things. Like don't, don't just keep building bigger barns to store up things that are just gonna rot away. You can't serve God and money at the same time. You can't do it. And for those who try, you're gonna find yourself worrying about everything in life. This is where Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. If you seek first the kingdom of God, in verse 33, you seek first the kingdom of God, God's going to take care of all the other things. You live a life where your focus is on God. Is this hitting home with anybody yet? This is so applicable, right? So relevant. Chapter 7, 1 through 12, basically this is, leads up to the golden rule. This is something quoted by politicians Quoted by non-Christians, there are groups, religious groups who aren't even Christians who, who quote and try to live by the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them, have them do to you. And then in chapter 7, 13 through 27, Jesus uses what some uh, call a, 
a Jewish two-way sketch of ethical teaching. And Jesus does this in other places too, where Jesus compares two different things. Uh, Luke loves to do this through the Gospel of Luke. Like Luke will have Jesus teaching on two different things where he's trying to capture two different audiences but making the same point, doing it. And here you have five different things Jesus talks about. He talks about the wide and the narrow road. He talks about wolves and sheep and wanting you to know the difference. He talks about fruitless and fruitful trees. He talks about those who live confessing one thing with their mouth but their lives don't uh, live into the confession. And then those who make a confession, they want their lives to honor the confession they make. And then last but not least, the foolish and the wise builders. This is the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount which hits all of us, right? Like there is something that I have worked you through in the last few minutes that probably smacks you between the eyes, like challenges, how you're trying to connect with God, how you're going about your social lives. Like this is still so applicable to today. So early on in my, my, um, my, early on when I was a preacher, I don't know why I stopped this practice, but every Monday morning, and I don't, I don't say this for pity, but for preachers, if you know others in your life, you can ask them, and I'll bet they would agree. Sunday night through Monday morning is the hardest time for us throughout the entire week. Uh, you're, uh, you're, you're questioning things you've, uh, you said on Sunday morning, like, am I, is my life living up to what I just placed in front of people this morning? And, and there are just all kinds of things you wrestle with. So Monday mornings, what I would do early on in my, my preaching career is that I, would, uh, I went to a coffee shop, and I would read the Sermon on the Mount every Monday morning. I did this for, for a long period of time. I would go to a coffee shop. I would open up the book of Matthew. I would reach after five, six, and seven. Now, originally, when I first had this idea, I thought, I'm going to go and spend time with Jesus and let Jesus comfort me every Monday morning, prepare me for a new week. And as I read the Sermon on the Mount, rarely did I feel comforted. I always felt loved. I always felt loved by Jesus. I did not always feel comforted by Jesus. Because the Sermon on the Mount isn't meant to comfort all of us. Right? It challenges how we think about life and money and friendships, how we go about the world. What is it that makes a teacher a great teacher? I, I, I bet most of you, even if you hated school, no intruit, I bet even you, like you know who, who your favorite teacher ever has been and what made them great. There are certain things I love in a really good teacher, whether it's in a church or a at school or a conference, wherever it is you, listen to, you live, listen to teachers. I love when I know a teacher cares about the people they're talking to. Like they really like them. Even if they don't know their names, they're not just there taking a message that they've given a hundred times and just walking on stage. Like they really genuinely care about people. I like when there's a teacher who is there not just to dispense information, but to inspire people. And I like when there are teachers who whatever information they are placing in front of you, that they're trying to honor that same information in their lives. So there's character and integrity of what they're teaching. Jesus did all of that. In the Sermon on the Mount, this isn't just some, some project by Jesus. Jesus cared about the people that he was talking to. Jesus wanted to inspire them to live their lives as people oriented, like drawn into the, into, into kingdom life. And every single word you read in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus embodied in his own life. All the way to the cross. There's not a challenge or message Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus didn't live out in his own life. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't just concerned about you getting to heaven. Jesus is concerned about heavenly living now. This is what Jesus was inviting people into. And this message wasn't just for the elite. This message wasn't just for those who were super religious. In fact, I began this sermon with the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and now I want to end with the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And for me, the beginning is not just in chapter 5. At the very end of chapter 4, here's what you see. Here's the crowd. So as you think about the content of the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to visualize this crowd that Jesus is speaking to. It says this, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan, they followed him. Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount to a bunch of people. Jesus had just healed, had driven out demons. Jesus had made things right. Jesus made relationships better. And now that crowd comes to Jesus on a mountain. Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it says this. Jesus saw the crowds, went up on a mountaintop, and he sat down as a good rabbi and good teacher would. They would sit down to teach. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So a crowd comes up the mountain to Jesus. The disciples seem to come out of the crowd a little closer to Jesus. Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, what it says in chapter 7, 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Everyone was amazed. Jesus healed in order to invite people into kingdom life. And here's the first word Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed. Now back in Genesis chapter 1, when God created human beings in creation, in the creation story when God created humans, the first word God spoke over humanity was blessed. Before God asked humans to be responsible over the world, before he asked them to multiply and to be fruitful, God blessed them. And about a decade ago, I had a close friend, a companion. And he said, Josh, the first thing God spoke over humans in the beginning was the word blessed. The first word Jesus speaks and the greatest sermon ever told in Matthew chapter 5 is blessed. And he said, the rest of your life, your challenge is going to be, are you going to live from the blessing of God or for the blessing of God? And we don't earn the blessing of God. You don't live for it. You open up your hands and you receive it. And this crowd of people that Jesus starts blessing are people who maybe all of their lives had never received a blessing like that before. Imagine all these people who are now made well. And Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by speaking blessing over them. So here's a truth and a grace and a reach for this week. Here they are. A truth is this. Jesus is the most compelling teacher to ever live. Make him your teacher. A grace is this. Jesus doesn't just teach to give you information. He teaches to inspire you and to generate and create life change in you for the rest of your life. And the reach and the challenge is this. I'm asking you this week to read the Sermon on the Mount twice. And I say twice for this reason. 
I don't know where it is that you read the Bible when you do. It may be in your bed. It may be in your living room or on a porch. Read the Sermon on the Mount wherever it is you read the Bible. But the second time you read it, I want you to read it outside of that context, preferably in a setting where you can see the world around you. There are times I take the Sermon on the Mount, I've taken it down to Court Square downtown. I've read this from the steps of, of banks. I want to see things around me. I want to see people moving. And I want to read the Sermon on the Mount in a context that reminds me of where I am called to live this out. So the reach is for you to read it twice. I want to invite you, if you will, to take the bread and the cup where you are. Those online, if you have the bread and the cup, if you'll just hold them in your hand. I don't want you to open them yet. But as we move into communion, a place where we remember what Jesus has done, when we're reminded of the commitment that we are living out as a church, this is something that we participate in every Sunday. That we take the bread and we take the cup and we recommit our lives to God. And I want you to think about this this morning. In the Beatitudes, when Jesus speaks the word blessed, and then he ends the Sermon on the Mount by reminding people of a foundation. Jesus blesses, and from that blessing, Jesus creates a foundation in your life. If you want a strong foundation in Jesus, it is not based on you trying to build that foundation. It is based on you receiving a blessing of God as Jesus invites you into life in the kingdom. So will you close your eyes and bow your heads as we pray this morning? And in prayer, God, this morning, as we take the bread and the cup, remind the people in this room right now, remind the people in this worship time right now that they are blessed. They are invited. They are wanted. And in this moment, God, inspire us. And church, I'm asking you this morning, if you want to open your hands where you are just to receive from God, will you just open your hands and receive these words that come straight from Jesus? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God everywhere. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the name of Jesus today, we take as people who are blessed. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Please enjoy the bread and the cup.